it's really your net returns, your net returns after costs and, and after taxes uh, and really after inflation too that matters and will drive the success of your retirement plan over time. So it looks like we're still going to get compensated fairly well for owning stocks, at least to a similar degree with what we've got compensated in the past. Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Well, hey there, and welcome to another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt here with you today alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you all throughout Northeast Ohio and Southwest Florida, and an office as well in the greater Pittsburgh area. You can find us online at truewealthdesign.com for past episodes, to find subscription links to some of the most popular apps out there. Of course, you can always just search for Retire Smarter. And be sure to follow and subscribe on your favorite apps. Kevin is uh, joining us today as he gets ready to say goodbye to Florida and go back to Ohio. You ended up staying uh, an extended stay in Florida with the um, you know the COVID last year, Kevin, and now coming back to Ohio. Is it hard to say goodbye to the sunny, the, the sunshine state? You know, we love. Uh, we feel very fortunate. We can do this and go back and forth, but um, we're, we're really looking forward to going back to Ohio. Um, you know, we still, I don't know if we, we, I guess we call them both home, but it's not like we consider one you know, maybe any different than the other, but we're really looking forward to getting back there. And uh, I will, as my, my girls, my wife and my two daughters will fly and, um, and I drive with the dogs. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of our division of labor there. So I'll take the girls to the airport. I will uh, close up the house and uh, head out early the next morning. And uh, stop and, and see a few people, see a few clients in uh, the Carolinas on the way back. So nice. uh, it's kind of a midpoint between up in your neck of the woods to a certain degree, I believe, Walter. And, uh, yeah. and I'll make our way back to Ohio and look forward to it. When you travel with the dogs, are they? do you guys crate them or are they free roaming in the car with you? So we have... Um, We've had two sets of two old English sheepdogs. So this is the first time I'll be making the trek back with our new set that we just got uh, last August. And we will not crate them. Um, they're actually quite, they're really good in the car and they love going for car rides. I mistakenly kind of turned our first two uh, into morons in the car. I, <laughs> I used to try to get them really pumped up to go to the park and go for a walk. And I would actually start barking at them, which in turn, they started barking. And um, in hindsight, I should have not have done that because they were forever idiots in the car because of the idiot that's talking right now. <laughs> um, so the two that we have now, uh, I mean, they're just great. So, uh, so it should be fun. It's interesting the unintended consequences that happen with dogs sometimes, right? We had a uh, one of our two dogs, um, she was sick for a while, and so she just wasn't very hungry, and this is several years ago. So there was a lot of encouraging her to eat. So it was a lot of like, you know, who's hungry, who's hungry, trying to get her really excited about eating and make it a very positive experience. But by proxy, it would also get the second dog, who had no trouble eating at all. Same thing with you in the car. Got him really pumped up for eating all the time. Now that life's back to normal and she's back to eating relatively normal, it doesn't matter because he's been trained when it's food time 
to go absolutely nuts. <laughs> so he's <laughs> literally bouncing off the walls now because that's how we trained him to act, I guess, by by proxy when he was a little bit younger and he saw her getting, you know, us pumping her up to get all excited for food. He was like, all right, cool, I'll do it too. <laughs> so, it's like uh, you can't even get the food to the floor now with him before he's already like knocking it out of your hand and trying to get to it. So, <laughs> right. It's, uh, yeah. We're our well, own worst we can learn from our mistakes. Right, that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> Well, we've got a really fun show today, and I know I say that every time, but you agree with me. They're always fun. And uh, we're going to kind of pick up a little bit where we left off on the last show, Kevin. We were talking about illiquid assets, real estate, business valuations, and kind of modeling those things into a retirement plan. And it gives rise to sort of that long-term planning focus. You know, what what do you think about uh, how your portfolio and your plan is going to look like 10 years from now? I mean, if I'm approaching retirement, yeah, I'm, I'm very invested and interested in knowing what the market, knowing what my plan is going to be doing for me in another decade. Uh, how's that growth going to happen? What can we predict? So I think this is a, a, a wonderful topic to bring up, especially on this milestone episode of number 75 uh, <laughs> for you, for the Retire Smarter Show, uh, to start diving into some of these things and, and look at what truly is a reasonable or an unreasonable expectation for a plan as we start to model out a little bit. I imagine that most people, I'm just going to guess, and then I'll let you run with this wherever you want to, Kevin. I'm going to guess most people have unreasonable expectations uh, when they first kind of start out thinking about, you know, what their plan is and and what they're able to do in retirement, or or would I be wrong on that guess? I would say in my experience over the last, you know, about two decades, uh, most people expect higher returns than probably what they should, you know, and that's just, that's based on some expected return forecasts similar to what we're talking about today. So, um, you know, that's not always the case, but, um, you know, candidly, that's a question that we almost always ask or should always ask uh, when we're getting to know somebody and, you know, considering a, a relationship and working together. What are their expectations? Um, it matters a great deal. You know, if they're expecting, um, <laughs> if you're expecting filet and you get served up spam, you know, you're not going to be happy, right? <laughs> if you're expecting, I had a, a call not too long ago and uh, they were expecting 20% per year. I said, you know, that's great. You know, if you find that, sign me up. So um, it's just, it's not realistic. Certainly you may have that happen. Um, if you, everything we're going to talk about today is think of probabilities and, um, you know, you can have, you know, 20% returns under that probability distribution, but you know, that's on average, not what you should expect. So, you know, most of our clients are I would say humble, hardworking, you know, educated people. And, you know, they really don't know what to expect. Um, you know, we ask them the question and, and they just maybe kind of pick a number and most of them are open to being educated. But, you know, if you have somebody that has unreasonable expectations, candidly, I mean, they wouldn't be a good fit for us to work with them because, you know, it's just not going to, it's not going to be a good relationship for either one of us. But where it matters beyond that, when you're thinking about these expectations, in terms of retirement plan, you know, we, we call our process the Retire Smarter Solution. So it's a six-step process that we go through. And the step that we, we touched on in the last uh, podcast was really that step one that we call it the retirement visualizer. So you're really just in a big picture. You're, you know, if you think of, uh, you know, you're in a plane and you're kind of bringing it closer to the runway. It's not like we're landing or anything like that and doing sort of fine detail sort of work, but we're really just kind of formulating the big picture. 
and you need to pull together all your financial assets. And in the last episode, we talked about how liquid assets, you know, your stocks, your bonds, your cash, easy to value, maybe a little bit more difficult to project, uh, which again is what we're going to talk about today. And then, you know, stuff that's illiquid, real estate, business, collectibles, you know, things along those lines, you know, difficult to value and difficult to project forward. But, you know, really you have to be able to look and see what sort of asset growth that you can have in your various financial assets that you can rely on over time to go ahead and create, you know, income that you need to support your lifestyle, um, whether you can't afford to retire, if you need to work longer, save more, you know, whatever the case may be, you have to make some assumptions about what your assets are going to be able to do for you over time. So it's really important from a retirement planning perspective. And those expectations are also going to influence how you're going to go ahead and combine your investments into your investment recipe or your investment allocation. So very, very important. If you have really high assumptions and and I would say unreasonable assumptions, that's probably going to be a retirement plan that is not going to work and is going to fail to a very certain degree. If you have a reasonable uh, assumed uh, growth rate on assets for your retirement plan, maybe even a tad conservative, probably something that's going to be more realistic and more sustainable. So you have to come up with you know some numbers. History could be a guide, but um, it's what happened in the past. We're really a little concerned about what's likely to happen in the future. I suppose you could kind of couch those expectations in many different ways. You could take the, hey, let's let's go with here's what our most ideal scenario is and try and paint a rosy picture for somebody. Um, that, that, you know, paints it in a better light than maybe the situation is try to shoot for the middle ground or take the, Hey, let's plan for the worst and then hope for the best. Do you kind of subscribe more? I know you don't subscribe to the more inaccurate. Hey, let's just, uh, let's just, you know, (laughs) hope that the uh, prediction is going to be the best case scenario, but do you find you and your team sort of skewing more toward the plan for the worst idea and overshooting on the underside? Or do you really try and hit kind of right in the middle with the most accurate, true uh, prediction and representation? Um, Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, The way I would answer that, Walter, is, you know, you need to go ahead and, um, Uh, have good spending data, and then we go ahead and prioritize our spending goals. So some of those are needs. Um, You really need to meet those. Uh, As the name implies, some of them are a little bit more discretionary. You know, we use needs, wants, and wishes. So what we do, we use our Basically, it's a return expectation. And then uh, there's that wiggle factor that we've talked about on, on prior episodes or statistically speaking called a standard deviation uh, that you use to go ahead and statistically model this out, uh, model out the uncertainty, subject the portfolio and the plan to stress test. But as you go through that, and if you find that you can meet the needs uh, for a client's plan to a very high regard, regardless of whether you're dealt kind of a bad hand or, or not, um, that gives us a lot of confidence and, sh- and we need to convey that to the client that, hey, you know, we, we can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but we know that your needs are going to be funded to a very high likelihood. You're not going to have to pull back from that. And then as you kind of move on down the totem pole into the more discretionary categories, you may find the same thing or in certain plans that maybe, you know, will, will likely work, um, but maybe aren't as well funded. It doesn't mean the plan is going to fail. I would say I would rephrase that and just mean that, you know, you're more likely to make some changes. Maybe you're going to have to pull back on spending. Maybe you're going to have to, you know, kind of skip, you know, a couple big bucket list trips or something like that. Something along those lines. I would say it's more of rather than success or failure, it's maybe likelihood of changing, if you will. Hmm, I like that. And, and not everything in life, Kevin, has to be boiled down to 
A or B. So I like that some things in some things in life can stay, you know, a little bit more nuanced. That's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, things should be as simple as they can be, but not simpler. Um, you know, uh, great Uncle Albert Einstein said something to that effect, and uh, I certainly is. You know, he's smarter than me, so I'll just I'll <laughs> ditto what he says. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, do you rely on data when you look at kind of you know? Let, let's get back to the ten year return expectations. I guess why ten years? Why is that such an important uh, important marker? Why not fifteen or twenty or some other number? Oh, because it just so happens what I pulled off of um, some of the resources that we, <laughs> we used. So, I mean, so I, it, it's a good, it's a fair question, but um, there's, so if we were to look at, uh, let me answer it this way. If we look at um, forecast for, you know, returns over the next one year, uh, the forecasting is is not going to be great. You know, there's going to be a lot more variability over one year returns. Um, you think of COVID, you know, <laughs> who would have guessed what happened, uh, you know, in 2020 going into the beginning of the year, stock prices were high. Um, and then we have a pandemic, um, you know, the world shuts down and then, you know, the stocks come roaring back, you know, in the, in the second, you know, and third, uh, well, really the third and fourth quarter of the year. Um, and, I guess even the second, I mean, March was terrible uh, and sold off really quickly. It didn't take long to get back, did it? <laughs> no, nobody would have predicted that. So if you think of like, if you start, uh, say a one year, you're going to have a much greater wiggle factor, much more disparate outcomes for one year returns. If you go out five years, you know, you're and if you look at a five year return, well, you got some of the noise out from the short term and it's going to trade, you know, more closely to what I would say fundamental value is, if you will. You know, hey, what's the price of the stock or the, the index? You know, what's, what do the earnings look like? What's the yield? Um, put it all together. And, you know, what we expect is more likely to happen uh, to a certain degree. I'll decompose that a little bit more later. But uh, if you go out 10 years, same sort of thing. And um, we've talked about this in the past, but if you think about price, you know, so starting price, how expensive is the market? So to say, um, well, if you look at it uh, and, and use that that gauge, and there's different ways to kind of gauge how expensive the market is. But if you look over one year, there's really no explanatory power. If you look over five years, um, basically the starting price will explain about 40 to 50% of the variability in the returns. And if you go out about 10 years, it'll get closer to about 60% or so, and, and maybe even a little bit higher if you got to 15. So, you know, the whole point of what I just said is nobody can predict what's going to happen in the short term, particularly as you do go a little bit further out in time. Five years, I would say at, at minimum to have some reasonable confidence. Um, but you know, 10 years even better. Then you can, this sort of, um, we're not going to go through the methodology. I'm just going to talk about the numbers. Uh, but the methodology that is gone through to, arrive at the numbers that we're going to share uh, actually has some statistical validity to it. And if you look back at that in, in the past, these sorts of forecasts do fall within um, kind of the range that you would expect. So, you know, 10 years ago, uh, and you look at some of these forecasts, similar to what we're going to talk about today, how did the next 10 years play out? Well, the returns you know have fallen within the range that you would expect. It may not be exact. There's always going to be kind of a plus or minus, so to say. Um, but the point being is the methodology is is sound in that regard. Okay, so let's go to, let's go down that path a little bit further and, and look at some of those. So we'll just uh, and you know whenever you're talking about return expectations in this business, uh, again, this is these are probabilities that we're talking about. Just don't take this as gospel. Um, basically, um, these are they're very sophisticated, and and again, there's um, validity to it. 
but don't take it like, Hey, this is what I'm going to get over the next, you know, these are expectations. Think about this in terms of probability with a range. I'm just going to simplify it and talk about more of a number, if you will. But that's just really, really important to keep in mind. And the numbers that I'm going to reference here uh, were taken from BlackRock. Uh, so BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. I don't know, something north of $4 trillion uh, under their advisement. Um, so most people have heard of BlackRock. iShares is probably what they're most commonly known for here in the U.S. But their, their data was taken as of March 31st. So um, it's pretty current. Um, the market hasn't moved all that much since the end of March. Uh, so fairly good there, particularly when we're thinking about 10 years. And then the second is a company called Research Affiliates uh, that um, people probably have not heard of, um, but uh, and I'm not exactly sure how much they currently advise on, but uh, they have a lot of different, I don't know, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars um, that they go ahead and uh, advise on, if you will. So uh, two really good sources. I just picked two and then averaged the two. And uh, Research Affiliates was as of the end of April. So a little bit different, uh, off by a month between the two, but hey, that's what I had at my fingertips and uh, they update them with different frequencies. So there we go. Um, so what I'm going to go through is just, just a handful, really broad asset classes. Again, you can get more sophisticated than this, but this is, this is certainly good to help form these expectations that we're talking about, you know, input into a retirement plan for reasonable projections and reasonable assumptions. And then also to help formulate, you know, what we want our investment mix to be like. So if we just look at large U.S. stocks, Walter, I got to, I got to weave you in here, buddy. I mean, what do you think? What, what should we expect for 10, the next 10 years for large U.S. stocks? Uh, let's go with like 8% a year. So, you know, okay. what, 80%. All right. So you said 8% per year. So BlackRock has it at 6.6. Research affiliates at 5. Average the two together. We're just a little bit under 6 at 5.8. I'm I'm an optimist. You're an optimist. um, (laughs) But uh, I know you know this. I've asked you this many times over the years. So as long as you're paying attention, you'll get this one right. No pressure. So what's the, what's the return of the S&P 500, uh, over, over time? If you look back through history, isn't it some seven, eight, nine percent somewhere in that range? Oh, Walter. Uh, Well, we haven't talked in a little while, you know? (laughs) All right. All right. Well, it's a little, it's a little bit north of 10, but let's just kind of round it down and call it 10%. So if we're at 10% historically, and that's basically from well, having... That's 19. why I originally said nine. I was only one, you know, 1% off. Walter, you originally said eight. <laughs> oh, did I say eight? I thought I said nine. All right. Well, one or two, you know, plus or minus. The standard deviation, the wiggle Walter, factor. Walter, you're, you're losing some street cred here with our <laughs> audience, buddy. Um, so historically, the returns have been an annualized 10%. The market almost never returns 10% per year. You know, you get... Um, you know, it just averages out that way. But um, Walter said eight, BlackRock says 6.6, Research Affiliate says five, put together 5.8. There's some others that I've, you know, I, I'm, I didn't necessarily put in here, but, you know, you'll see some that are maybe a slightly more positive, not so much. A lot of them are in kind of the six, 7% range. Some are quite a bit more pessimistic than five, actually, in the low single digits. Um, but nonetheless, you put it together, let's just call it an average of six, certainly a lot lower than the historical 10% that we just mentioned. So very, very different there. So if you're expecting just history at 10 and um, BlackRock saying, well, hey, that's 
too rosy, research affiliates saying that's really rosy, we're thinking about half of that. Well, you're probably going to be disappointed uh, if you're going down that path and maybe making some bad investment decisions if you have those unrealistic expectations. So uh, something important to, to notice there. So that's uh, largest companies in the U.S. Um, if we go outside of the U.S., so international developed countries, Europe, Japan, Australia, Canada. Um, all right, Walter, go ahead. You're guessing, buddy. What do you got here? 10-year returns. 10-year, oh, gosh, I have no idea. I don't even know where to begin. I'm sorry. Greater being, or less than the U.S.? Uh, let's say less. All right, so both of them are actually higher than the U.S., oh, so you're over 2, buddy. Over so, 2 today, man. Don't worry, you're, you haven't struck out yet. We'll, we'll get you back here in the game. Sorry, it's, um, base, it's baseball season. I can still turn this around. <laughs> yeah, BlackRock has 8.3, Research Affiliate 6.5, put them together for an average of 7.4, or a little bit more than 1.5% per year, you know, more return expectation for large international stocks than domestic large stocks. So part of the reason is uh, U.S. has done quite well over the recent past, has gotten a lot more expensive, and uh, just the starting prices are a lot more favorable outside of the U.S. So that's pretty consistent, not only with BlackRock and Research Affiliates, but with several others that I review. In fact, I don't think any uh, other return forecasts that I've reviewed uh, on a regular basis have the U.S. doing better than foreign stocks. So uh, something to keep in mind for mm. all of I know we have somewhat of a international audience. I forget the weird country or uh, that you mentioned we had a listener in, but yeah, what was it a Luxembourg or something like that? Maybe we had uh, one. no, I can't recall. But um, uh, anyway, most people have most of their money, and most U.S. citizens have most of their money in U.S. assets. So may need to think a little bit differently going forward and, and favor a little bit more international diversification. So those are developed foreign stocks. Um, what about the emerging economy? So here we have China, India, Brazil, even South Korea. Um, so emerging markets. All right, Walter, let me think about how I want to phrase this question. Um, is yes. the return... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, is the return expectation uh, higher or lower for U.S. stocks in emerging markets? Uh, I would say higher. You're correct. All okay. right. You're All on right. base, buddy. Right. I'll give you a single there. So um, actually, both of them have it. It's a respectable day. Yeah. 7.4. So they're both uniform there. So now here, um, you know, we're at 7.4. So again, a little bit more than a point and a half more for emerging market stocks than U.S. stocks. Uh, so we're everything that we've said so far is pretty much between like five and eight percent in terms of you know the range of expectations for those stocks. If we go into real estate, um, the average there is is about six percent is what they're expecting. And now if you go into bonds, call it two and a half between the two. So if you're just looking kind of an aggregate bond mix, about two and a half percent. If you put that all of that together, so again, large U.S. stocks about six. Foreign stocks, you know, closer to seven and a half. Real estate about six. Uh, aggregate bonds about two and a half. And you put that together in a portfolio, maybe sixty percent stocks and forty percent bonds. You're going to get somewhere, you know, close to five percent or so on a return expectation basis over the next ten years. How's that strike you, Walter? I mean, not not terrible, but. Uh, reasonable, I would say. Yeah, one way I, I would think of it. So we mentioned historical return for U.S. equities was about ten percent. The historical returns for bonds, um, and 
call it like five-year government bonds is about 5% over that same time period. So if you think about your return, uh, excess return of stocks over bonds uh, throughout you know the last hundred years or so in the US, it's been about 5%. And you know if you think about the returns for stocks versus bonds here, it's not too dissimilar. Um, the thing that I would say is interest rates are a lot lower than what they really ever have been. So on average, we could probably still expect that, hey, we're going to get maybe an extra, you know, if we're unlucky, maybe 3%, um, but probably more likely 4 or 5 maybe if we are lucky, 6% more for owning stocks versus bonds. And that's been pretty consistent with what we've seen through history. So it's all relative, so to say, you know, inflation was a little bit higher over the past. I know we have a little bit of a spike of that right now, but in general, it's been a lot lower over the last couple of decades and probably is going to stay lower if we look out, say, 10 years from now. At least that's what current market expectations are. So uh, it's not just the the kind of the nominal or the, you know, the, the total number that matters so much, but it really is kind of the return. It's really your net returns, your net returns after costs and, and after taxes uh, and really after inflation too that matters and will drive the success of your retirement plan over time. So it looks like we're still going to get compensated fairly well for owning stocks, at least to a similar degree with what we've got compensated in the past. The uh, other popular country, by the way, I looked it up, uh, Northern Mariana Islands. They're just north of Guam. Uh, you have actually quite the listenership there. In the past three months, it's the third, let's see, yeah, third most popular country for downloading the podcast. So there you go. <laughs> All right, there we go. You, and you do have a Luxembourg listen, just one, but you did register. We have a few clients that, uh, that are from Luxembourg, so maybe they're listening while they're over there. <laughs> and that's what happens, yes. Uh, if you listen while you're in one of these other countries, if you're traveling or something, it'll ping as a listener there. I suppose there could also be some VPN play at work if somebody's using a VPN on their phone or uh, something like that and using another country to access the internet. I wonder if perhaps that registers a download from one of those other countries. Otherwise, you have quite the travelers <laughs> when it comes to your clients because you're registering a listen in lots of different, at least like one or two listens in lots of uh, other countries, but a significantly decent amount in the Northern Mariana Islands to where I actually think you may have somebody hanging out there enjoying the show. So there you go. Very cool. Um, one of the things uh, that's really important uh, that I mentioned here. So, you know, again, call it five, between five to 8% for various types of, of stock-based investments, whether it's domestic or foreign, foreign developed or emerging, um, a little bit less for real estate, a lot less for bonds. If you look within the equity markets, look within the stock markets, and we've talked about this a lot over the, like the last year, you know, tech stocks have done really well um, going into and leading up to 2020. And then they did really well going through COVID. Uh, and they've done so well that they just got really expensive that it was very unlikely that they were going to continue to do well. Not that they were bad companies. It's just that the price had gotten so high. So even though they were good companies from an investment perspective, they were very unlikely to be good investments going forward. And that's really played out over the last call it a year or so now, particularly over the last six months as the vaccine has been 
um, developed and, and distributed um, maybe eight months or so now. But the difference between like value and growth stocks and technology uh, definitely more prevalent within growth stocks and, and value. You can just think of value as kind of lower growth, uh, maybe more traditional um, sort of investments. They tend to have a little bit more financial services, more energy, more industrials. A lot of those lower growth stocks were more harmed during COVID and actually had been out of favor for many years relative to the higher growth. High flyers, you know, the FANG stocks, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, and Google can even add in Microsoft there as well. But um, in short, you know, that disparity or the difference between those lower growth and high growth stocks really reached a historical peak um, in the U.S. Uh, last year. And we've seen quite a strong rebound um, where these, you know, lower growth value stocks are doing really well. And um, generally speaking, the sign shows that you want to tilt towards and own more of those value stocks than the growth stocks. Uh, and this is something that's probably going to continue to play out for over this 10-year time frame that we're talking about. You never know exactly the path. But in general, a lot of these return expectations are, are projecting the value stocks should, on average, over the next 10 years, maybe do 3 4 5% better than the higher growth, growth stocks, largely, you know, the tech stocks. Um, so, you know, three, four, 5% per year. Again, if you compound that over 10 years, you're talking about quite a big dollar difference, you know, multiplied over those, those 10 years. But, you know, with anything, you may want to favor some of the things you're going to expect it to do a little bit better, um, whether that is foreign stocks or value stocks. Uh, and then own a little bit less of the things that are maybe, you know, overly expensive. Largely, a lot of these, you know, tech darlings that have done so well coming into and through the beginning of COVID. Even if the returns are maybe a little bit lower, maybe if they do come in, say, at like four or five percent and a little bit more at the lower end of the range for U.S. stocks, if you do favor some of these lower growth value stocks and maybe a little bit more small stocks than large stocks. That's another way to go ahead and get the return expectations up a little bit more than just, um, than just kind of owning like the S and P 500 broadly. So, you know, we're just talking about some broad averages here, broad expectations, certainly how you would go actually go and use this information to construct a portfolio. It gets more complicated as you can imagine. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that could be the saving grace. Even if we are in a low return environment, Owning some of these stocks that have been out of favor, um, they're likely to continue to kind of come back as they have over the last six or eight months. And that's likely to continue to happen for, for several years ahead of us. So much happens in 10 years. It's just amazing to try and predict where all these things are going to be. I'm curious, Kevin, and you may not have this data on, on hand, but I'm just curious you know, we have the historical returns, the 10% or slightly north of 10%. I'm never going to forget that now, Kevin. I, I, will, I will ingrain that into my memory. I think there was a bird outside the window that was distracting me when I answered that question <laughs> earlier earlier today. So cut me nice. some slack. Uh, but I think I, I'm thinking like I want to lean more toward the historical when it comes to these kinds of things. Just seeing this past year. And all the crazy things that can happen and how hard it is to predict. I'm just curious, do you have, they've been making these predictions, I imagine, for a long time. Do we have data on how well their predictions have panned out in the past? They're, they're kind of these assumptions that they've made or these, uh, these prognostications. Have they been relatively accurate in their previous uh, iterations? Yeah, yeah, they have. In fact, I, you know, I, I did mention that uh, kind of going through this. So, um, 
research affiliates or affiliates itself. Um, I just actually reviewed a piece recently where they looked at some of their historical projections and, and without getting too far into the mathematical weeds, the short answer is yes. I'll answer it maybe a little bit differently. You know, bonds are easy, uh, relatively easy to predict. Um, if you just kind of decompose where bond returns come from. And if you just think of like a U.S. government bond, um, whatever the starting yield is, is going to explain almost all of the return going forward. So 10-year U.S. government bonds today trading around 1.6%. You hold that bond over that 10-year period, that's what you're going to get. If you get into more credit-sensitive bonds, corporate bonds, um, junk bonds, things like that, um, then you know you're not only do you have uh, an interest rate exposure, but you have a credit exposure there. So it's a it's it's a little bit more complicated, but nonetheless, bonds are pretty easy to forecast, uh, particularly the high quality treasury bonds, what have you. You get into stocks, and you can really think about um, maybe three variables there: the starting yield. That's easy. Um, you can just see, okay, what's the yield on, say, the S&P 500? Well, today it's below 2%. So we know what the starting yield is there. Um, and then you really look at earnings growth per share. Uh, so I didn't mention this, but BlackRock thinks we're going to grow a lot more than what research affiliates thinks, uh, both here domestically as well as outside of the U.S. Uh, but I mentioned per share. You know, their companies are always issuing shares, um, you know, executives, Key employees may get equity compensation. So, you know, basically there's more shares being issued, which means that current shareholders are being diluted to a certain degree. So it's always the earnings growth on a per share basis. Um, and then the third, so I got yield, I got earnings growth per share, and then it really it's a change in valuation. And uh, the valuation change is you can't really predict how um, people are going to feel, you know, are they going to bid up prices and are they willing to pay the prices that they are today, uh, which are pretty high, or in 10 years, are they going to, you know, maybe not be willing to pay as high of a price and maybe it's going to go back closer to what it's historically been. So if it goes, if prices go back, you know, to what they've historically been, um, then, you know, basically that valuation change is going to be a, a negative contributor to our total return. So the yield is pretty easy. Earnings growth um, is a little bit more difficult. There's a lot more variability there to predict, but over long periods of time, you can do a pretty good job estimating that. Um, the valuation change is, uh, is speculative. Um, John Bogle from Vanguard you know, had a similar sort of model that he talked about. I saw him talk about it at a couple conferences while he was still alive over the years. And he talked about those first two that you can kind of forecast. Certainly the yield's easy. Earnings growth over the long term is fairly predictable. Um, short term, you know, not so much. And then the valuation change is speculative because you it's the market's comprised of people and people are emotional and you don't know how that emotion is going to is going to strike the market on any given day. Uh, there's been a lot of weird things going on in the market with GameStop, with Hertz, with AMC, with people bidding up certain prices of stock and kind of irrespective of what the fundamental value is. But in inevitably that music is going to run out and um, people are going to be looking for chairs, but you just don't know when that's going to happen. It's a great analogy, actually, of the uh, musical chairs and that same feeling of, uh oh, I don't see a chair nearby me. I feel like you're right. There's going to be a lot of people that fall into uh, into that same feeling in the pit of their stomach when it comes to some of these uh, crazy things that we've seen happen in the market over the last couple of months. Uh, it's definitely been interesting to watch. So 10-year return expectations. There's the skinny on it all. And um, 
how do you then, Kevin, I guess, to put a bow on this, wrap all that into somebody's financial plan? You just do their emotions and their appetite for risk and for these expectations then kind of play a role in how you then develop that plan? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is part of pretty much every conversation that I have with a client. Um, you know, we talk about, um, you know, we, we, we've been taking more risk now for many clients for about a year or so. And, you know, clients have certainly benefited from that with higher values in, in their accounts and they've been very happy. And the common question is, you know, hey, does it make sense to still do this? Um, so if you just kind of think through what we talked about today, we're still likely to get compensated pretty well for owning stocks relative to bonds. So the conclusion for most people is yes, at least financially speaking, you still have to talk through it qualitatively and, and make sure that they feel comfortable with it. Um, but we talk about, you know, maybe a good way to answer this too is if you go back, there's, I think, two series that we did, one on uh, retirement income. Um, and I talked about how it needed to be dynamic and how we need to adjust our portfolio given expectations. So we talked about expectations today. We've adjusted client portfolios many times uh, over the years and, and to quite a degree over the last, you know, 14 months or so um, as stock prices sold off. Um, so that's, that's always a conversation that we're having with our clients. It is really couched within the context of, you know, financially what makes sense, what kind of return do they need for the financial plan to work? How much risk can they afford to take? Uh, we call that risk capacity. We really measure that within their financial plan. We don't want them to have to make an adverse change uh, to their lifestyle. Uh, if, you know, a bad event happens and we're kind of taking too much risk and take it on the chin. Um, and then really it's, it's kind of, you know, the risk tolerance and how much they're comfortable with. So you know, most people want to sleep comfortably at night and uh, you, you don't want to get them out of that comfort zone. So this is always kind of a, at every single meeting we're talking about this and just trying to make smart decisions. If we're not likely to get compensated for taking more risk, then probably doesn't make sense to do it. So, you know, these are, it's a definitely dynamic world that we live in. And as you get new information, same process, but you got to feed that new information into the process. You may have a different outcome. It's a great way to look at it. If you're not going to get compensated for the extra risk, why take it? And uh, I know that you have a great mentality when it comes to analyzing all of these things, Kevin. And if you've been putting together a financial plan or a retirement plan and haven't had this level of conversation with your advisor, it might be time uh, to have that kind of conversation. And if you can set up a 15-minute call with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team by going to truewealthdesign.com, just look for the Are We Right For You button. Again, truewealthdesign.com. Or you can call 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-TWD-PLAN. And we'll put that contact info in the description or show notes section of today's show so it's easy for you to find. Kevin, thank you so much for the help and the guidance on the show today. And uh, looking forward to more episodes with you soon. All right, Walter, look forward to a record next time from Ohio. There you go. 75 down, 25 more to uh, number 100, my friend. So... I guess we'll get there in just about a year at our current pace. Um, That'll be a fun day to celebrate. But congrats on your mini milestone here of uh, episode 75. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the show today. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.